everyone. Great to be here at camp, isn't it? And Pastor Dave texted me earlier this week and said, can you give a talk today? And I said, is there a theme? He said, there isn't officially a theme, but I don't feel like the banjo and the mandolin gets much of a look in. So if you can talk about honky-tonk music, that'd be great. So I thought, that's a bit weird, but I thought, I'll give it a go. So the title of today's talk is Smoky Mountain Blues. Okay? And if you've got any issues with that, you can take it up with Pastor Dave straight after the meeting. All right. Just by show of hands, who's familiar with God's Great Week as a concept? Has anyone heard of that before? And hands up if you've not heard of that. No idea. I'll explain that anyway. Yep. Okay. So you won't find that in the Bible. If you do your concordance search, you won't find God's Great Week. But it's just a thought, which is that God created a pattern for a reason of six days of work and one day of rest. And uh, it says in Deuteronomy there, keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it. As the Lord thy God has commanded thee, six days shalt thou labor and work, and the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord. Uh, in it thou shalt not do any work. And uh, we know that in the Bible, in 2 Peter 3, 8, and in Psalms 90 and verse 4, it explains that a thousand years can be one day with the Lord, and one day as a thousand years. So to extrapolate that out, God's great week might mean 6,000 years of work and 1,000 years of rest. And so that's sometimes what we extrapolate out as God's great week. There's been nearly 6,000 years uh, since God started his relationship with mankind, with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And uh, in Revelation 20, it does speak of a thousand-year period after the first, uh, the first resurrection there, where Christ takes residence on the earth. And the minority who have been faithful uh, are there with Christ, and Satan shut away, and the other souls of the dead remain in the grave for this period. Essentially, it's a period of rest, with no Satan and a perfect government on earth. So if we have 4,000 years approximately from Adam to Christ and 2,000 years or two days from Christ to present day, we may well be right at the end of the Bible time period there. Or if you remember the statue there in uh, the book of Daniel, where the, you proceed down from the head to the body and to the legs and to the feet, and then we're basically right in the toenails of time in that time period there in the, in the Bible. So when was Christ born? Christ was probably born no later than 4 BC, so four years before he was born. Um, quite incredible. Only only Christ could have managed that. Um, and we know that because Herod the Great was still alive and he died around that time. He was baptized and anointed with the Holy Spirit around 27 AD and crucified around 30 AD. And shortly after that, God's Holy Spirit was poured out upon mankind. So if you rewind the clock 2,000 years to the day, does anyone know how old Jesus would be 2,000 years ago today? Approximately? Take a guess. 20? Someone say 20? 25? Jesus would be approximately 25 years old if we rewound the clock exactly 2,000 years ago. And his ministry started when he was uh, about 30 years old. And uh, that's a scriptural pattern in Numbers 4 that when you enter the priesthood, you start at 30 years of age. There's no biblical record of what Jesus did in his 20s, so we, we believe his ministry there started in his 30s. And so we're probably about 5,000, sorry, five years away from the 2,000 year anniversary of when Christ began his ministry 
and probably around eight or nine years away from the 2,000-year anniversary of Christ's crucifixion and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost for the first time. Interestingly, though, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, And except those days should be shortened, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So referring to the end times there, Jesus says, I'm actually not going to let it play out right to the end. I'm going to draw it back just a little bit so that the elect can, can be saved. There's also a story in Isaiah 38 and 2 Kings 20 where God bends time backwards. He makes a sundial go backwards 10 degrees. And basically the, the point of the story is time belongs to God. He can do what he wants with it. So don't think, you know, for a moment that you've got five or eight or nine years until I sort of have to get it right with the Lord, like we heard in the testimony. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Christ could return at any time. We might not make it to the evening meeting. We might not make it to the end of this talk. Who knows? Could be a very long talk. Who knows? But Christ is going to come like a thief in the night, suddenly and unexpectedly. Let's just turn to Luke 13. Luke 13, you can put a page marker there as well if you like. So speaking of the clock bending backwards, does anyone know how you can tell if a clock is still hungry? It goes back four seconds. Well done, that's a suitable level of groan for that joke. All right, I can just tell you're awake, that's good. So Luke 13 and verse 31. So we've just set the scene about this, this concept of God's great week of 6,000 years of work, 1,000 years of rest, that we might be right close to the end of that sixth day. The day before the Passover, by the way, was called the day of preparation. Or, sorry, the day before the Sabbath as well was called the day of preparation. So you would make sure that everything was ready to go so that when that day of rest came, you didn't need to uh, break the rules. In Luke 13 and verse 31, very, very interesting couple of scriptures here. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. Speaking to Jesus. In verse 32, And he said unto them, Go ye, and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. So what does this mean? Today and tomorrow, I'll be doing cures and casting out devils, and on the third day, I'll be perfected. What does that specifically mean? Because he, he, we often talk about a three-day time with Jesus as the uh, three days he spent in the grave, but he didn't spend two of those days doing cures and one day being perfected. If it was literal three days from this time, there's a lot more than three days that passes between here and Jesus' crucifixion. So what is he referring to here? Is this is this a a, a prophecy. If we were to look at a thousand years, or sorry, if we look at a day for a year, which is another Bible time frame, you'll find that Jesus' ministry totaled about three and a half years. And so you'd actually find that if you were to, if you were to classify when he was uh, ascended into heaven as his fulfillment or perfection, that actually happens in the fourth day. So what does he mean? I'm doing cures and casting out devils today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Could it well be that this is a reference to a thousand years for a day, where Jesus has spent the last 2,000 years casting out devils, doing cures, healing people, right up until this present day, and on the third day he will be completed 
and perfected with his saints. We're hopeful and expecting, waiting for the return of the Lord. Keep your page marker there in Luke 13, because we'll come back there in just a moment, and just flick back to Leviticus and chapter 19, please. Just while you're trying to find that. There's there's mummy balloon and daddy balloon and baby balloon, and they all sleep in the same bed. And um, baby balloon's just getting far too big for this arrangement, and so daddy balloon sits baby balloon down and says, look, I really think it's time that you spent all night in your own big boy balloon bed, okay? And there's a few sniffles and a few tears, and the baby balloon says, okay, daddy. And so mummy and daddy balloon hop into bed that night, and baby balloon's in his own little bed, Halfway through the night, he gets a bit frightened and comes in mummy and daddy's room and they're sound asleep, dad's snoring, mum's sound asleep. He tries to jump in the middle and just can't quite fit. And so he hops out, tries again, jumps in, still can't fit. So he goes to the end of the bed and lifts the blanket up and unties daddy and lets a little bit of air out and ties him back up. And then tries to jump in, still can't fit. So, ah, I'll untie mummy. So he goes to the end of the bed and unties mummy and lets a little bit of air out. Ties her back up. Still can't fit. He goes, oh, I've got one too. So he undoes his little knot and lets a little bit of air out and ties himself back up. Fits in snug as a bone. In the morning, Daddy Balloon wakes up and he's pretty cross. He says, Baby Balloon, we really want to be proud of you today that you spent the whole night in your own room. He goes, I'm sorry, Daddy Balloon. He goes, Baby Balloon, it's just not good enough. You've let your mother down. You've let me down. And worst of all, you've let yourself down. Nothing to do with the talk, but if you don't remember anything, you can remember that it was a letdown. All right. Leviticus 19 and verse 5. It says here, this is an interesting one, actually. There's a parallel here as well. Uh, this is about the, uh, the offering. And in verse 5, it says that if you shall offer a sacrifice of a peace offering unto the Lord, you shall, uh, you shall offer it at your own will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and on the morrow. If all remain until the third day, it shall be burnt with fire. Uh, I actually don't have the parallel written down here as to where, where else it is there. It might be in Exodus or Deuteronomy. Um, but there's essentially two conditions. Usually you may remember that the Passover needed to be eaten on the same single day. There was not, not a single thing to be left over. Anything that was left over needed to be burnt with fire. But this particular offering here, if it was made of free will, or if it was made of a promise or a vow, you could eat the, the meat the same day, or the next day, but then the third day, the, the promise or the blessing of that promise was to be reserved for fire. And so when we think about the parallel with Jesus Christ, where he, he has uh, offered himself of his own free will, but also as the promised Messiah from God, that he was to, uh, the blessing was to be poured out for the, the one day, and the second day and the third day, that this blessing was then to be reserved for fire. And let's just turn back to Luke 13, while you've got your page markers there. Luke 13, and verse 23. Then said one unto him, Lord, if there are few that be saved, and he said unto them, Sorry, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. 
For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door, you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know not whence you are. And you shall begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence you are. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. And the point here is, from Jesus' parable, is that there is a limited time frame to his blessing. We talk about God's unlimited love and, and, uh, that there's, you know, there's no constraints to it. But he himself has put a time frame on it. There will be a time where the, the doors to the ark will be shut, so to speak. There will be, there will be people on the outside crying, Lord, Lord, open. Didn't we do these amazing things? Haven't we prophesied in your name? And you should say, I know you're not, because they've missed the time frame. They've missed the boat on walking with the Lord. And so when we look at these uh, two stories here in Leviticus, that the, the free will offering of God was available for two days and on the third day reserved for fire, and we see here that Jesus says, right before he explains that he has two days to do miracles and cures and to cast out devils, the third day he's perfected, he explains that there is a time cap on this promise. Let's just turn to Hosea, chapter 6 in the Old Testament, see if you can find it. Another amazing prophecy here. Chapter 6, verse 1. Come. I'll just give you another minute to get there. Sometimes hard to figure out where the minor prophets are in relation to each other. Isaiah 6. And verse 1, it says, Come, and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, in the third day, he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know that if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the latter rain, and the former rain upon the earth. And we, uh, there has been a great period of revival right at the start. We've read about it all in the book of Acts and the epistles that follow on from that. The thousands and thousands of people that heard the gospel, that responded to the gospel, that the gospel spread out into all corners of the of the known world and beyond. And we've seen a great period of, of Lateran revival in these last hundred or so years where the gospel has spread around the world and people have responded and they've received the Holy Ghost and they're speaking in tongues. And towards the end of the second day, we have seen this great revival. There are also a number of other stories that parallel this, of two days and the third day, a conclusion or a finality or a perfection. In Genesis 40, we won't turn there for time, but it's the story of Joseph, who is himself a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. And Joseph is interpreting two dreams while he's in prison. There's the chief butler who told his dream to Joseph, and Joseph said unto him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days, yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head and restore thee unto thy place. And the second was the chief baker, when he saw the interpretation was good, he said unto Joseph, I also um, was in my dream. Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation thereof. The three baskets thereof are three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head from off thee, and it shall hang thee upon a, and shall hang thee upon a tree. 
So in this example here, where Joseph gives this incredible prophecy that was fulfilled to the letter, there were two days, and in the third day, there was a conclusion, either to be elevated with the king, or to have your, uh, or to be put to death, as it were. There's another example there in Joshua chapter 3. We don't have time to turn to all of these, but Joshua chapter 3, where Joshua crosses over from outside the promised land. He goes right through the Jordan into the promised land with the Ark of the Covenant, and he tells the people to remain 2,000 cubits behind him. I think Pastor Rob mentioned this at last year's Karakalinga camp. And a cubit can be, in Jewish culture, can be a measure of time as well as a length of uh, distance. Uh, could this be another prophecy of Jesus? I mean, Joshua literally means Jesus in Hebrew. He crossed over the Jordan into the Promised Land 2,000 years before the people. Let's just turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. So you can see that this theme continues right through the Old Testament, the New Testament, of this incredible three-day time frame, where there are two days of work, whether that's cures and miracles, whether that is revival. And on the third day, there's a conclusion, a finality, a completion, a result. In Exodus 19 here, and this past the day is where we're going to get to the Smoky Mountain Blues, so don't, don't fear. We've got a Smoky Mountain and some very, very glum faces. Okay, Exodus 19 and verse 9, it says here, And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak unto thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people, and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people on Mount Sinai. And here we have it again. This must be our eighth or ninth example here from the Bible, where there is two days to wash and prepare and be ready against the third day where the Lord will meet the people. In verse 12 it says, And thou set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that you go not, not up to the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not an hand touch it, that he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down to the people and, and said unto the people, Be ready against the third day, come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, and the mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long, sorry, I've skipped along there, waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. Verse 20, And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on top of the mount, and the Lord called unto Moses, uh, up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And so you can sort of see this incredible scene here of Moses coming and instructing the people. You've got two days to be ready to wash and prepare. On the third day, we're going to meet the Lord. On the third day, this huge fire and smoke, thunders and lightning, and the, the voice of the trumpet waxing louder and longer from the mountain as the people go out there, and they are 
incredibly fearful. They're frightened and afraid. And so, um, so far, we've also been given two days or 2,000 years space to repent, to sanctify ourselves against the meeting with the Lord, to wash our garments in the blood of the Lamb, and to prepare for the return of the Lord. The Lord's return will also be with clouds, with the voice of the trumpet. It will also be unmistakable. The whole earth will see this event. The earth has already been overwhelmed by water, and the next time it's reserved for fire. Uh, just Deuteronomy, oh, you can... Yeah, Deuteronomy 4, if you wouldn't mind, please, just quickly. Deuteronomy 4. It says here, in verse 15, uh, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spoke unto you in horror out of the midst of the fire, lest you corrupt yourselves and make a graven image the similitude of any figure and the likeness of male or female. So there's a particular reason that God chose to present himself in that way on that day as well. He was very specific to put a border around the mountain, that no one was to go to the mountain, no one was to touch the mountain. Even if a small little cute bunny rabbit hopped off the mountain, you needed to immediately pierce it through with arrows. It was so that no one could say that they'd seen God. No, I know what God looks like. He looks like a little bunny rabbit. It hopped down off the mountain. I saw it with my own eyes. Anything that came off the mountain needed to be thrust through. God is very specific here. People desire something they can touch, something they can see. And uh, it says that if they had seen anything, they would have corrupted themselves and made a graven image. Whatever it was that came off the mountain, if a tree fell down, a little bunny rabbit, whatever, kangaroo, I don't know if they have kangaroos, probably not, they would have made a molten kangaroo, and that would have been their God, and they would have corrupted themselves. But how was it that God chose to demonstrate his presence there. In verse 32, it says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee, since the day that God created man upon the earth, and ask from the one side of heaven unto the other. So a pretty, uh, a pretty in-depth survey here. Whether there has been any such thing as this great thing, or has been heard like it. Verse 33, Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as thou hast heard and lived. Verse 35, Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God, there is none else beside him. 36, Out of heaven he made thee to hear his voice, that he may instruct thee, and upon the earth he showed thee his great fire, and thou heardest the words out of the midst of the fire. So God very specifically and deliberately avoided a physical representation. But what did he use to prove himself? A vocal representation, the voice of God. We also have a vocal gift that proves to us, each and every one of us, that God is real, that God is true, that his son died for us, that we have a future, that we have a hope, that we have uh, two days there where Jesus has still been doing cures and miracles, that we can wash and be ready, that when the Lord comes we know we'll be with him. We've also been given this vocal sign and the nominal Christian world They've gone after the graven images. They've gone after the little bunny rabbit and the kangaroo, or Jesus Christ nailed to the cross, the molten image, the golden cross, the stained glass windows, whatever it is, the, the, the shaker with the smoke, the purple robes. They've gone after these things. They've corrupted themselves and have abandoned God's great vocal gift, which is given to us to prove his presence and blessing. In the Hebrews chapter 12, 
Hebrews 12 and verse 18. And this is now looking back at that same story in the New Testament context. It says in verse 18, For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the word, which the voice they heard, um, entreated that the word should not be spoken unto them anymore. In fact, if you, if you rewind back to the Old Testament there, they actually begged Moses to go and tell God to stop because they were so afraid. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned and thrust through the dark. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Although in the King James it has a little smiley face after that. It says, but you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God in the heavenly Jerusalem, and unto an innumerable company of angels. It's like, to me, what God is saying here is, you're not equipped for life on Mars. I'm not trying to give you some sort of space suit so that you can stand living under the conditions of Mount Horeb. It's, you know, you haven't been given level five hearing protection so that you can withstand the trumpet and some sort of blast suit so that the fire doesn't get you, and lightning rods so that the lightning doesn't get you. He hasn't prepared us for life under these conditions. He's actually brought us to a new covenant, the covenant of Mount Zion, which you'll read there in Acts 2, if you have time, and that after Jesus was crucified, the Holy Spirit was poured out there. In verse 23, it says, that to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, which is written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more now shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So just because the children of Israel heard the voice of God and no one had ever heard that, did that mean that they followed him forever? Did that mean that they were completely, that their faith was totally unshakable? Just because they crossed through the Red Sea? Just because they saw the ten plagues? Just because they saw the manna from heaven? Just because they saw the pillar of fire and smoke? Did those amazing miracles mean anything to them in the long term? Eventually their hearts turned away. If you're taking notes in Deuteronomy 27, God already foresaw this and he knew that their hearts could not be captured. In verse 27 of Deuteronomy 5, it says, Go thou near and hear all the words that the Lord our God shall say, and speak thou unto us that the, that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. This is the people speaking to Moses. They said, it's too, too scary being anywhere near the mountain. You go speak to God for us. You come and tell us and we'll hear what you've got to say. But in verse 29 it says, Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. God already knew back in Deuteronomy 5 and 29 that the children of Israel's hearts would wax away, they would turn away, they would grow cold, and that iniquity would abound in them. And so those who heard the voice of God on the earth, they turned away. And they were, they were not spared. But for us, it is up to us now to hear the voice of God speaking from heaven. In verse 26, it says, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Once more I will shake not the earth only, but also the heaven. 
And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as are the things which cannot be shaken, they remain. Sorry? I'll read that again. Yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as are things that are made, and those things which cannot be shaken, they remain. And Christ has a prophecy recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that the powers of heaven would be shaken. And if you look at the words there, it's actually, the, the root words there could be dynamite and uranium, violently shaken together, if you look at the, the Greek words. It's actually a fairly accurate description of a nuclear explosion. What the Bible's telling us here, and in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6, and many other places, Matthew 24, for example, is that anything that can be shaken will be shaken. Things that are made, things that can be shaken, will be shaken. So that the only thing that remains is things that are unshakable, things that are unmovable. In verse 28 there it says, Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So everything that can be shaken will be shaken. You've got to build your life on the rock. So just a quick recap. So Christ spent two days doing miracles and cures to be perfected on the third day. He's been doing miracles and cures for 2,000 years. A peace offering, if it was made by promise or free will, could be partaken of for two days. Thereafter, reserved for fire. And Christ's free will and promised offering has been available for 2,000 years. After two days, God promised to revive his people on the third day to raise them up. And we have seen the former and the latter reign over the last 2,000 years. The two dreams from Joseph, a foreshadow of Christ, on the third day, captivity was either turned to death or life with the king. Joshua passed into the promised land 2,000 time measurements ahead of the people. God gave the children of Israel two days to wash their garments, to sanctify themselves, and to prepare for a meeting with God on the mountain. Mankind has been called to repentance to prepare themselves for the return of the Lord over the last 2,000 years. So this talk is in no way a prediction of the time or the day that Christ will return. I have no more idea than anyone else sitting in this room, but the Bible does encourage us to look at the signs, to look at the Bible, to look at the prophecies that are there, and to make sure that we're ready whenever that time is. It might be today, it might be 10 years from now, it might be 500 years from now. I'm not trying to predict when the Lord will return. What I am trying to encourage you to do is to make sure that you can't be shaken. Just finishing in 1 Corinthians 15, please, and verse 58. My favorite verse. It's your responsibility to be ready against that day. We know that today is the day of salvation and now is the acceptable hour. In 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. And just for a moment, I'm just going to insert unshakable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know as your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Only the unshakable will endure. Make sure that your faith is built on the rock and that your faith is unmovable. 